Thank you for tuning in to this episode of We Are Rivers, a podcast where we tell stories and talk issues about the rivers that connect us. I'm Paige Bono, your host. Today, we're going to the desert with river guide and water expert, Jocelyn Gibbon. You'll hear from Jocelyn about the unique perspective that she has from both being a guide on the river and having a legal background that allows her to get into the gritty details of water law and management. Jocelyn Gibbon and American Rivers work together alongside the Environmental Defense Fund, Western Resource Advocates, Audubon, and Business for Water Stewardship as part of the Water for Arizona Coalition. Collectively, these groups are working to support innovative practices and smart policies for the state's future. I caught Jocelyn just before she was headed on a river trip, which is pretty fitting. Um, Well, Jocelyn, it's really great to have you here on the We Are Rivers podcast today. And um, I know, you know, you have a couple different hats and we're going to ask you to kind of wear the different hats at different points. But I'd love to start um, talking about your experience as a river guide. And I think you're headed out tomorrow on a raft trip. Do you want to, can you tell us first where you're headed and a little bit about your experience as a guide? Thanks Paige. Yeah. I'm really happy to be here and I am headed out. Um, we're leaving on Friday and, uh, headed to the Grand Canyon. Uh, so to run the Colorado river in the Grand Canyon from Lee's Ferry to Diamond Creek, which is 226 or 227 miles. And I'm super excited to go there. Haven't been there in a little while. Amazing. Sounds like it's not your first trip on the, on the Grand though. It's not. I work as a guide um, for Canyon Explorations, which is a company based here in Flagstaff. And um, I started doing it when I was 23. Um, and uh, I've done maybe 50 trips or so guiding trips through the canyon. It's um, become one of the real passions in my life. How did you know you wanted to become a river guide? What drew you to it? What's your, your journey? <laughs> I didn't know I wanted to become a river guide. <laughs> um, I went to school and thought I wanted to become something very um, productive and useful <laughs> and uh, hadn't... Um, hadn't even been introduced to, um, to the potential of living a life, doing something like guiding on a river. And do you just guide on the Colorado or what other rivers do you guide on? Just the Colorado. Um, uh, love to explore other rivers, but that's where, that's where I work. It sounds really bizarre to say just the Colorado, right? It's sort of the, uh, the epitome. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Well, tell me, you know, so you live in Flagstaff, you live in Arizona. Can you tell me a little bit about what makes rivers in Arizona unique? Sure. Um, Hard to know where to start with that one. Um, Arizona rivers are, are all really pretty remarkable. Um, And I guess I think about that in all kinds of different ways. Um, Obviously they are, a water source and a life-giving source. Um, like we all obviously couldn't survive without water um, and not much that we do as humans could happen without water. Um, and um, I guess they are a life-giving source for uh, creatures besides us as well. Um, and, you know, Arizona's a desert state. Um, so, 
just about everything that lives uh, depends on water in the landscape. It's been shown that Arizona is the third most biologically diverse state um, in the United States, or at least lower 48 um, behind California and Texas, um, which surprises a lot of people, but it's got such vast uh, elevation ranges um, from, you know, from more than 12,000 feet in the San Francisco peaks all the way down to sea level near Yuma. Um, and so there's just this amazing diversity of landscapes in Arizona. And that comes with this amazing diversity of life and of ecosystems. Um, and they all depend on water. Um, so that's only one thing that I think is amazing and unique about Arizona's rivers, but it's a big one. You talked about it a little bit, but something I'm struck by is, um, you know, you talked about water as sort of this critical life force. And if it feels different, you know, having been from the Northeast, if water in the desert in Arizona feels different, if rivers just have sort of a different meaning um, or appeal because of the landscape they're surrounded yeah, by. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, I think I've always been drawn to water and to rivers in any <laughs> landscape, but here in Arizona, um, it's just so obvious how important they are. Um, and they do feel different um, because uh, when you're in a really dry area, um, the, the contrast of these ribbons of green, you know, that are cooler, that are um, more full of um, plants and animals, and um, uh, just you can you can feel the clustering of life around uh, rivers and streams and springs. Well, let me ask you this: like, what is the value of a river? Uh, that's a big question. Um, you know, it depends on which lens you want to look at it through, but. Uh, like there's the value of a river in the water that it brings. And we often look at rivers as water supplies and they're really important as water supplies. And um, there is immense value in <laughs> getting to drink water, grow things with water, uh, use it for all these different purposes. Um, then there's, um, you know, as we talked about the value of a river um, for the life that it supports, the non-human life that it supports um, in the landscape. And then I think there's also, um, uh, for me at least, and I think for a lot of other people, there's a, um, there's a deep spiritual value to rivers. Um, it, you know, it's hard to put into words sometimes, but um, the Yavapai Apache Nation who are, um, they're located on the Verde River in Arizona, which is another one of my favorites. Um, their land is, is located near the Verde River. And um, a, a number of Yavapai Apache Nation people whom I've met um, have quoted one of their elders as saying that so long as the river flows, life will be good. And um, I feel like there's a lot of uh, wisdom and truth in that statement. And, you know, I, I don't, I haven't had all of the experiences that that elder has had to make her say that. Um, but it means a lot to me to, to think that way that um, they are such an essential part of and so represent um, something that's good in the world. 
And they and they literally, they are fun and beautiful and good. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Rivers are good. It's true. Sometimes we make it so complicated and <laughs> it's pretty basic. Um, all right, I'm going to ask you to put on your other hat. Um, I think, you know, we've talked a little bit about the values, the value of rivers. And I know you also do a lot of work through the lens of environmental and water law. And I bet that that lends a bit of a different perspective. Um, can you talk first just about, you know, sort of your legal background and, and the work you do? Yeah, I uh, am trained as a lawyer. And I work, uh, I have worked as a water lawyer and an environmental lawyer. Um, and then more recently, um, I have used that background in my work as a natural resource and water policy consultant. And a lot of the work I do is with um, conservation organizations, watershed groups, nonprofits, um, but really organizations that are interested in water policy um, and uh, often through the lens of sustainability and protecting rivers and water supplies. There's definitely a different lens through which you see um, uh, rivers when you're looking through, when, when I'm wearing my legal hat, put on my legal glasses, it's a different picture than the one that you see when you're rowing a boat in the Grand Canyon. I worked as a guide before I went to law school and um, it was very striking to see uh, <laughs> the degree to which rivers aren't thought of as rivers in our law, but are thought of as um, basically conduits for water for us to use. Um, and I think um, a lot of the work that needs to be done and um, that people are doing right now is to kind of reconcile those two so that we can um, we can make sure that we are valuing and preserving rivers both for um, what they bring us when we use them <laughs> and consume the water in them and also um, you know while while helping allow a river to also still be a river in the landscape at the at the sort of you know confluence of those two perspectives i'm curious what your boat you're most sort of um concerned about and i'm thinking about you know groundwater and about you know the the various different ways that our our rivers are uh, threatened or impacted and i'm curious kind of what's on your mind right now i think that it's important to share some basics about how rivers get treated under um, the law, because I think it surprises people sometimes. Um, our Western water law here in the Western United States um, was basically developed as a system to take water out of rivers and put it to use. And um, it developed when that was what the concern was. <laughs> when European Americans first started settling the Western United States, um, their concern was to use water to irrigate crops, to uh, engage in mining activities, to support their all of their endeavors. 
And our water law originated in that time period. Um, and it originated as a system that's now called prior appropriation and basically is a first come first served system for taking water out of streams. Whoever took water out of the stream first uh, got a continuing right to keep using that amount of water each year. Um, and anyone who came along afterwards could only take water out of the river if it wouldn't interfere with those pre-existing uses. Um, so, uh, so the system, and again, it's called prior appropriation because prior is, you know, do it first and appropriation is to take it. So if you take it first, you get a water right and that water right stays attached to the land that the water was first used on. And um, that system became enshrined in the law in Arizona, but also in most Western uh, states in the United States. And um, I think what people are often surprised to know is that that system doesn't include any kind of built-in stopping point. Um, that wasn't what was on people's minds when they developed basically this custom that then became law. There's not a built-in stopping point where you say, okay, that's, that's as much as we're going to take out of the river in order for the river to still be a river and still continue to flow. And um, I want to I want to emphasize that that doesn't mean that we like use up every single river. Um, in some cases, we don't. Um, <laughs> in some cases, that lot that lot itself actually ends up helping protect a river because, for example, if there's a water user at the downstream end um, of a river who has a very senior uh, prior water right. Um, then, then the law protects water flowing in the river down to that water user. Um, so I don't mean to say that um, sort of our law is set up to always um, drain rivers dry, but it's not set up so that there's any systematic kind of way to make sure that that doesn't happen to specific rivers or stretches of rivers. I should add though, while it's a different part of the story, it's also important to recognize that the system didn't account for indigenous people who had been using and connected to water and rivers and springs in a variety of ways for many centuries. So that's, that's some basic context. And then I guess within that, um, if you wanna talk about groundwater, that's kind of another part of the story that is also something I think about a lot. <laughs> hey there, it's Paige, pausing us real quick for a commercial break. Did you know two thirds of our water comes from rivers? That means that not only do rivers make our lives better with all the miraculous things that they do, but we really truly can't survive without them. And the We Are Rivers podcast can't survive without you, our listeners. With that in mind, please consider supporting this podcast with a monthly donation to AmericanRivers.org slash We Are Sustainers. It's just 10 bucks a month will help us produce episodes on wildlife and rivers, tribal water rights, the relationship between wildfire and a healthy river, and so many more. Oh, and American Rivers is a 501c3, so your donation is 100% tax deductible. One more time, that site is AmericanRivers.org slash We Are Sustainers. Thanks so much. Back to the episode. Yeah, I would love, and I think, you know, it'd be great to 
to have you explain to us sort of what the relationship between groundwater and rivers is, and then, you know, what those concerns are about groundwater. Um, So groundwater, and I guess starting with what is groundwater, groundwater is water that's underground. (laughs) Um, uh, Surprise, surprise. So it's the water that's found um, in the spaces uh, between sediments or the cracks in rocks. Um, So kind of whatever's underground, the spaces in that stuff, there's water in there. Um, And in some geologic layers, there are great vast supplies of water. Um, And that's groundwater. And that's the water that we get when we uh, drill a well and pump it. And uh, in Arizona, groundwater makes up about 40% of the state's water supply um, in a typical year. Um, The connection with rivers is that um, especially in Arizona, where we don't get as much rain or snow as uh, other places in the world (laughs) receive, um, the source of year-round flow in many, if not all, of Arizona's um, rivers and streams it is groundwater. And can you talk a little bit about how those groundwater stores get recharged? You know, if they've been there, it sounds like for a long time in some cases, and it sounds like they're abundant, but what's the kind of time frame for those? Uh, scientists have, have, have dated groundwater to see sort of how long it's been underground. And it can range from really recent to um, tens of thousands of years. Um, so. Groundwater is recharged, and in that way, some portion of it can be thought of as renewable. You know, it, it, it gets replenished when it rains or snows. But then there's also a large portion of Arizona's groundwater um, that was deposited many, many years ago. So when we use it and take it out, um, it's, more, it's more like it's sometimes it gets called groundwater mining, you know, when we're... Um, when we're extracting the groundwater uh, at a rate that's um, faster than it could get recharged, given that it's been recharged over thousands of years. So just to kind of make sure that I'm understanding, it sounds like in Arizona, water is coming through perennial waterways like the Colorado River, um, you know, and some of the other main, the Gila and maybe the Salt, the Verde. Um, and then there's also these more ephemeral and intermittent streams that are fed kind of briefly by runoff and and monsoons or rains, and then there's groundwater um, in sort of varying states of abundance and uh, age. Yes. The one qualifier I would put there is that um, that parts of the Verde and the Gila and the Salt Rivers do flow year-round, and then um, parts of those rivers do not flow year-round, and um, that's for a mix of reasons. But, um, but for example, um, the Salt River and the Gila River, um, we take all the water out to use it uh, before each of those rivers um, flows through Phoenix. So each of those rivers used to uh, typically flow through the Phoenix area, and now um, both of those river channels are largely dry for a lot of the year in the Phoenix area. And I also sometimes separate out the Colorado River um, because uh that the source of a lot of the water 
you know, is outside of our state. Um, well, and it sounds like, so the Colorado river is, you know, regulated by the, the law of the river, the, the Colorado compact. And, you know, we do have some episodes that listeners who are interested can, can tune into for more sort of in the weeds on that. But I guess I'm curious how the other water in Arizona is regulated. Um, if it's regulated, uh, surface water in Arizona, which is the legal name for our rivers, like the Verde, the Salt, the Gila. Um, uh, we call it in-state surface water to differentiate that from the Colorado River. And that's governed by this um, law that I described earlier called prior appropriations. Groundwater is treated in Arizona as if it's an entirely separate thing from surface water, even though we just talked about how it's not. <laughs> and um, it's often, you know, the source of flow in these rivers and streams that make up surface water. In 1980, Arizona passed the Groundwater Management Act, which was at the time um, considered a very innovative um, and forward thinking piece of legislation to regulate manage, protect Arizona's groundwater, um, which at the time was being uh, used very um, heavily, especially in the Phoenix and Tucson areas. And um, they were experiencing declines in groundwater levels. Um, and um, so Arizona passed the Groundwater Management Act. The Arizona Groundwater Management Act created these areas called active management areas or AMAs. Um, and there are five AMAs in Arizona. Um, they are mostly in the central Arizona uh, area around Phoenix and Tucson. And um, groundwater is regulated one way within those AMAs and then another way outside of the AMAs. And outside of the AMAs um, in the more rural parts of Arizona and the smaller cities and towns, um, there is very little uh, regulation, management, or oversight of groundwater. That is one of the things um, that I work on with some of the, uh, you know, some of my colleagues and clients and uh, organizations I work with, um, because the lack of groundwater management in a lot of the state is starting to cause uh, consequences that we'd rather avoid. Uh, both for rivers and streams, but also for uh, communities who depend on groundwater as their water supply. Do you care to talk more about those consequences? <laughs> I'd be happy to. <laughs> so in Arizona, outside of these active management areas, groundwater is governed by the legal doctrine of reasonable use, which means if you're a landowner, you can pump and use groundwater. Um, and there's no, there's no oversight of that or limit on that. And so it means that you can use groundwater, even if your pumping is going to interfere with somebody else's well or use of groundwater, even if overall groundwater uh, basins are being depleted or exhausted. Um, and even if there's an interference with the flow of rivers and streams or springs, but there's nothing in the law that um, that says, and this is very unique um, in Arizona, actually, at this point, 
Um, there's nothing in the law that says before you drill a new well, you have to do some kind of assessment to see if you'll affect somebody else's use or uh, a river that happens to be somebody else's water supply um, or a sensitive environmental area. Um, so we're starting to see some of the consequences of that around the state um, with um, areas where residents are experiencing wells going dry. Um, there are some communities that are concerned about the longevity of their groundwater supply. Um, and we also see places where uh, pumping, if it continues and even continues to increase um, without any kind of management or conservation where that pumping might interfere with the flow in rivers and streams and springs. Um, and in some places that then has implications for surface water rights and surface water users. Wow. <laughs> so, and how are things like, um, you know, the increase in frequent, the increased frequency of drought or climate change um, or, you know, development? I think I saw that Arizona grew um, in this last census. How are those factors contributing to um, this groundwater sort of depletion or, or the challenges associated with it? You know, I think mostly what all of those factors do is put more pressure on our water supplies. I'm sure some of your other episodes have addressed challenges on the Colorado River, and that might be something that people have read about in the newspaper. And the Colorado River is itself um, already over allocated. And then the amount of water that's available in the Colorado River in a given year um, has been decreasing and is expected to continue to decrease. So when you think about it, like in Arizona, um, some 30 something percent of Arizona's water usually comes from the Colorado River. I already said about 40% comes from groundwater. Um, so when you see drought and climate change decreasing the availability of these surface water supplies, it means that um, there's more of a tendency to turn to groundwater, like even more reliance on groundwater. And as Arizona grows, that also increases the demand for water resources. Um, and um, it's actually become a phenomenon that in some parts of Arizona, um, it seems that there are um, industries that are locating themselves in parts of Arizona that don't have any restrictions or oversight um, on groundwater use because um, that makes it a very accessible and affordable water supply for them. Um, and so that then further increases the pressure that's been put on the resource and um, those pressures intensify. Um, there need to be more tools um, available so that we can protect groundwater resources for the long term and for the communities that rely on them and even for the springs and streams that rely on them um, to keep them flowing. As you just kind of started to go there and I was going to ask, you know, who stands to lose if we if we don't put these sort of regulations in place or if we aren't more uh, conscious or careful or regulated about the ways um, that we're managing that water consumption. 
That's a really good question, Paige. Um, and you know, I think most immediately who stands to lose are the people with the shallow wells, because literally the rule right now is that the deepest well wins. Um, so those with shallower wells, those who can't necessarily afford to dig a deeper well or a new well, which in many cases are um, the residents, you know, people with residential wells, small family farms. Um, so they stand to lose. Um, but then ultimately it's actually rural Arizona communities that stand mm -hmm. to lose. It's the state's rivers and streams and springs that stand to lose. There are tribal nations in Arizona who rely on groundwater and potentially lose. It's the state as a whole. If the state of Arizona, um, you know, becomes a less desirable place to live or to do business because um, our, our water supplies aren't secure. Um, and it's future generations. You know, it's people who um, come along after us and don't get to live in a world that's as rich as the one that we live in right now. Well, Jocelyn, I think, you know, those were kind of my biggest questions, but I, you know, that you know so much and you're involved in so much. Um, what am I missing? What else is important for people to think about when they are trying to sort of understand and wrap their head around the role of rivers in Arizona? I think the only other thing I'd say um, is a little bit more about the groundwater piece of the picture. These issues are getting a lot more attention here in Arizona. and. Um, and I guess I'm really excited to see that and um, welcome that there's more dialogue happening around that issue, because from my point of view, it's a pretty big one. <laughs> um, you know, it, it speaks to the future of our water supplies for our communities, and it speaks to the future of rivers, streams and springs, if you care about those. Last question. Do you think about this while you're floating the grant <laughs> or do you, are you just like absorbing the, the history or, you know, what do you think about while you're down there? When I'm down there, I, I think about everything and nothing <laughs> like in some ways it's a chance to disconnect, but it's also a chance to think about, uh, big things, <laughs> Um, including, you know, what I personally value in life and the world, um, which does, as you can probably tell at this point, like include how we treat our water resources and our rivers. One of the things that I love actually about guiding trips down there is the opportunity to talk to the people who are on our trips about some of these issues. I make sure to get in an hour or so with most groups um, sharing some of the information that I've learned in the work that I get to do about um, how we use how we use the water that's in the Colorado River that they're floating on, um, and uh, it's usually really fun to um, to see people engage and care uh, about how we how we treat the world around us. Amazing. <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks so much, Jocelyn, for sharing with us and for sharing on the trips. And um, yeah, we hope it's an amazing trip and we'll definitely look forward to catching up hopefully in the future to talk about the, the really innovative groundwater management practices that Arizona's putting into place. Thanks. I'll look forward to that too. <laughs>
I so appreciated Jocelyn's insight into the challenges facing Arizona and the opportunities for common sense legislation that acknowledges the overstretched and likely decreasing availability of water in the state. You can learn more about Water for Arizona and some of these issues at waterforarizona.com. Thank you for spending time with us today. This episode was produced by Paige Buono and Faye Hartman. Forgive me for being a bit of a broken record here, but we truly appreciate your feedback. Rate and comment. Help us improve. Tell us what you like and who you want to hear from, what you want to hear about. Share us with your friends. Till next time.